When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. The New Statesman. I'm Ida Volk, Europe correspondent in Berlin. I'm Alona Ferber, editor of the New Statesman Spotlight Policy section in London. I'm Jeremy Cliff, writer at large in Berlin. It's Thursday, the 12th of January. You're listening to World Review from the New Statesman, a twice weekly international news podcast. Every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. Then, later in the week, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. Brazil's new president, Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, faced the first crisis of his presidency when hundreds of supporters of Jair Bolsonaro, his defeated predecessor, stormed government buildings in Brasilia on January the 8th. I've arrived here in my office on the second floor of a Planalto Palace. As you can see, everything has been destroyed. Look at this. See this monitor. It's criminal what they've done. We discuss what this apparent attempted coup means for the country and the disturbing similarities between this insurrection and the one at the US Capitol two years ago. Then we discuss Israel with a new governing coalition led by former and now current Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who is still on trial for criminal charges of bribery, breach of trust and fraud, has been busy pushing judicial reforms that his opponents say will erode the country's democracy. I, Benjamin Netanyahu, son of Zila and Benzion, may their memory be a blessing. Commit as Prime Minister to be loyal to the State of Israel and its laws to fulfill my role as Prime Minister with faith and execute the decisions of the Nyeset. We also take a listener question on Ukraine's problematic nationalist heroes. Thank you for joining us. Let's begin. All right, well, it's great to have Jeremy Alona with us today. Let's start off with Brazil. So on January the 8th, hundreds of supporters of former President Jair Bolsonaro stormed the beautiful modernist buildings in Brasilia designed by Oscar Niemeyer in an apparent attempt to overturn the election of the current president, Lula. Some police were seen sympathizing with protesters instead of preventing their assault on the seat of the federal government. And Lula has called this a neo-fascist attempted coup. 
Jeremy, can you set out what exactly happened in the background to this insurrection? Well, you have to go back to the Brazilian presidential election in October last year between um, the far-right Jair Bolsonaro and the centre-left Lula, in which Lula won, as polls predicted he would do, albeit somewhat narrowly than had been anticipated. And there had always been the possibility looming for months of Bolsonaro attempting to emulate the January the 6th, 2021 storming of the US Capitol, that is to say, a violent attempt to overturn the result of an election like that. And there were some protests by truckers on the roads of Brazil after Lula won. Bolsonaro's supporters also camped out outside various military centres essentially urging the military to stage a coup. Now, it didn't come to that. And when Lula was inaugurated on the 1st of January, there was, I think, a, a sort of sense of that was the dog that hadn't barked and, and Brazilian democracy had been spared any any attempt on the result of the election. And then, as you say, Ido, we, we get to January the 8th when Bolsonaro supporters from elsewhere in the country all converged on the capital, uh, Brasilia, as you say, architecturally magnificent, but seen that day to rather horrific um, scenes as those thousands of protesters arriving together, so apparently some element of organisation, converging with those who were already protesting outside the military headquarters in the Brazilian capital, and then effectively marched on the institutions of power, namely the presidential palace, the Congress and the Supreme Court. And just around three in the afternoon that day, they broke through police lines to storm those buildings and caused chaos. And it took it took a number of hours for order to be restored. Some 1,500 protesters were arrested. And since then, there has been this big question about who was organising it, how organised was it? There have been questions about the role of the police. There, were, there was footage of police officers talk, chatting quite cordially with some of the protesters. It is claimed that the, the doors of both the presidential palace and the Congress were not broken down, they were opened, which of course also begs some questions about who precisely was in on this. And indeed, as we record this, the governor of the state of Brasilia has just been suspended from his role. He is indeed a, a, a Bolsonaro ally. And I just think that perhaps we can get on to the sort of international ramifications of this and the echoes of January the 6th in the US. But I think just to briefly stay on Brazil, this goes to show how daunting a challenge Lula faces as he his presidency gets underway. As I say, the election was narrower than some had anticipated. Bolsonarismo, although its protagonist, Bolsonaro, is now effectively in exile in Florida, it remains a force in Brazilian politics. Uh, Bolsonaro's allies hold the governorships of the three largest states in Brazil, as well as that of the, the capital, Brasilia. So Brazil's politics is still very polarised. Economically, the country faces huge, huge challenges. And I think that, you know, there was a certain optimism, particularly on the left, when Lula won and when he was inaugurated. He's associated with a very positive era in Brazil's modern history when he was when he served two terms as president in the 2000s. But it's worth stressing, really, that this presidency is going to be much more difficult. He faces much more difficult domestic political circumstances. Economically, Brazil faces much greater economic headwinds than it did in the 2000s. And uniting the country, as he was to some extent able to do last time, is going to be much harder this time. So I just think it, it, it goes to show how big a challenge faces him. I think we should get on to the international ramifications and echoes of this insurrection in, in a moment. But just before we do, obviously, as, as you as you said, there were these persistent fears before the election that 
because Bolsonaro had hinted that he wouldn't accept an election, he lost. And in the end, of course, the election was in October. And I'm not sure whether he ever conceded, but he he never attempted to sort of hold on to power. And he left the country. He didn't attend Lula's inauguration, I think, but to hand over power ceremonially. But he didn't kind of attempt to to stage a, a self-coup as Trump did in the same way before leaving power. But do we have a sense of, and, and obviously this interaction took place on January 8th after Lula had, had been inaugurated on January 1st. Do we have a sense yet of the degree to which this was coordinated and perhaps endorsed by Bolsonaro or, or, or his political allies and to what extent they, they really thought that they could overturn the election of a president who had already by that point come to power? Yes, as you say, I mean, Bolsonaro had almost explicitly said he wouldn't accept defeat. He once said that the 2022 election in Brazil would result in him being either arrested, dead or victorious. Obviously, in practice, none of those things happened. He did sort of implicitly acknowledge Lula's victory. He didn't He didn't formally concede, but he found words that sort of accepted the reality of the situation. And as you say, he left the country on the eve of the inauguration. And there is some suggestion that, you know, was he leaving the country then to try and avoid arrest or implication for anything that would that would follow? And the, the picture, I'm afraid, is, is still fairly murky. It seems very likely that there was some sort of an element of collusion with some elements of the forces of the law in Brasilia, just the way that those crowds were let through, the ease with which they were able to storm those institutions. That very much seems to be the outlook of the Lula administration. As you say, he's called it a a neo-fascist coup attempt. The Bolsonarista governor of the capital state of, of Brasilia has been suspended. So it's not entirely clear what lines of influence or what lines of leadership link this to Bolsonaro himself. But while that's still all emerging, I think what we can reflect on is that Bolsonarismo remains a very powerful force in Brazil. It motivates his most diehard supporters to take to the streets and camp out at military bases and indeed storm the buildings of Brazil's democratic system. And his allies remain not only, as I say, significant forces at the level of Brazil's federal states, but they also are the the largest force in both the upper and lower houses of Brazil's Congress. And so it's not gone away. That coalition that Bolsonaro built, merging evangelist voters, voters close to the military and the police, social conservatives and elements of Brazil's business elites into a sort of broad coalition, that has not yet gone away. So I think that that's what we can say so far. And then, you know, Bolsonaro is going to need to find his own coalition going beyond his own base of support to pass legislation and to try and pull the country together after this. And one interesting question is, alongside the Bolsonarista right, there is still the older, more moderate centre-right in Brazil. Lula was able to draw support on elements of that in his um, second round victory over Bolsonaro. Simone Tebet, for example, who was the the centre-right's candidate in the first round of the election, did endorse him. And so one wonders, will the horrific scenes from Brasilia on January the 8th help help him broaden his coalition and build a coalition to stand up to the Bolsonaristas? That's one of the many kind of outstanding questions facing the, the country's uh, democracy. And just finally, of course, if you describe a, an angry mob supporting a defeated populist right-wing president storming the seat of, of the federal government in January, no less. It's very difficult not to think of parallels with January 6th. The date is, is almost identical. Just kind of briefly to, to end, does it seem like there was some kind of um, 
cross-pollination between Trump in the US and Bolsonaro in Brazil. And and maybe more broadly, we occasionally talk of this idea of the kind of illiberal international, these right-wing populist movements which learn from each other. Obviously, the, the similarities here are really, really crying and, and difficult to to ignore. Does it seem like this method of desperately trying to overturn the results of democratic elections, is that something that's that's spreading, that perhaps we can expect more stormings of government buildings and, and the seats of power in, in the future in other in other countries. How, how do you see this? Certainly looking at the scenes from Brasilia, it's impossible to miss the parallels with Washington on January the 6th, 2021. And I think it's tempting to say, well, this was a Brazilian imitation of what happened in the US. And I think that there is elder elements of truth of that. The Bolsonaro movement did look to Trump. Bolsonaro was known as the Trump of the tropics and was close to Trump and styled himself after Trump. But perhaps that doesn't tell the whole story. First of all, I think that Trumpism and Bolsonarismo and other similar phenomena in international politics all kind of emerged and came up at the same time. There were mob elements to Bolsonarismo long before last week. And indeed, long before January the 6th, 2021, Bolsonaro used, whipped up crowds of supporters to act in often sort of aggressive ways. He used violent rhetoric. It was like all of these movements quite sort of online. Um, you know, a lot, a lot of these causes and these supporter groups coalesced it on social media, which I think is a sort of a very striking element to a lot of these other movements, including the kind of Trump holdouts in the in the US. So perhaps a better way to look at it is that these are parallel developments that all have certain shared traits and that those traits have generated similar scenes in Washington as in Brasilia. And I think that this does have major international significance. It's clear that this is a, this is a sort of a new style of challenge to democracy that comes not as was sort of quote-unquote, traditional in Brazil from the military. You know, Brazil has a relatively recent experience of military dictatorship, but that emerges from electoral politics and emerges from a conventional, recognisable party political system. It is, you know, parliamentary politics turning against, or, or electoral politics, turning against the very system that, that produced it. And I think that's another striking similarity between the, the Trump movement and the Bolsonaro movement. In where, where we might next see something like this possibly might be in Turkey because Turks go to the polls in, in June. Erdogan, some obvious similarities between his strongman style and those of Trump and Bolsonaro. He too might well be defeated. Polls suggest he certainly might be. He has already abused his country's democracy quite severely and has a sort of a diehard core of supporters. Certainly possible to imagine something like that in Turkey. That is if the elections can be can take place freely and fairly enough for an actual defeat to emerge from them. So I think this is an international phenomenon. And that, by the way, is, I think, why you saw the rapid and resolute response by a lot of Brazil's allies to the events on January the 8th. You know, it was striking how quickly other world leaders, Joe Biden, various European leaders, other Latin American leaders took to social media or, or, or other platforms to issue statements of support of Lula, saying we recognise the Lula government's legitimacy this uprising can't be allowed to succeed. Just being very clear that any actual coup or any any toppling of, of Lula's legitimately elected government would not receive any sort of inter international recognition. And indeed, Biden has since invited Lula to visit Washington in February, I think, to kind of shore up that sense that he has the support of Brazil's international allies. Because I think people recognise that what is at stake here goes beyond Brazil itself. It's about 
what internationally can be allowed to stand, particularly in electoral democracies, under strain, as so many of them are. So yes, a big story for Brazil, but also one that has implications going far beyond it. Well, we'll certainly keep an eye on both on Brazil and on challenges to electoral democracy all across the world. But for now, let's move on to Israel. Benjamin Netanyahu's sixth governing coalition is an unprecedented far-right religious one. Looking to get back into power, Netanyahu partnered with extremist parties, and those parties now hold key positions in his new government. Now, only a few weeks into the life of the new coalition, we can see the warnings about what it might mean for Israel are being borne out with violence on Israel's streets and calls to arrest the opposition. Alona, it's great to have you on to discuss this. Can you just give us the background to this new coalition? Obviously, Netanyahu was was ousted, I think, about a year and a half ago by this coalition of uh, very disparate parties, which collapsed after pretty much exactly a year. Um, and then he he won the most recent elections and formed this very right-wing coalition. So how did this coalition come into being? I guess, first of all, I just want to say that this is a very neat follow-on from your discussion about Brazil, because obviously in Israel, you've got another kind of strong managed leader who's good friends with Trump and kind of loves Putin, who's now in government and sort of doing a lot to erode d- democracy. So it's another example here of this sort of trend. And, and you know, whereas in Brazil, you have kind of uh, far right supporters threatening democracy from outside of government. In Israel, you've got them sitting in, in, in a governing coalition and really threatening it from within. So as background, how this coalition was formed, I guess it's important to understand that Israel is, has a proportional representation system. And so if you win an election, you need to be able to cobble together a governing coalition out of different parties. And Netanyahu, as, as you said, Ido, you know, Israel has been through, I think, something like five elections in under three and a half years. Netanyahu waited very patiently in opposition for a year or so, desperate to get back into power because he is on trial for criminal charges of fraud, bribery and breach of trust. And his best way of staying out of jail is to get back into power and find a way to basically not go to prison. So what ended up happening this time around is that he made a coalition with the only parties who would join him in government. You know, he didn't have much room for leverage or leeway because the only people who would sit with him were these parties. So the two ultra-Orthodox parties, Shas and United Torah Judaism, they represent the Haredi community in Israel. And then um, a number of other parties that are very much on the far right of Israel spectrum. So nationalist, religious, anti-Arab, and homophobic, all sorts, all sorts of great things. And what they've, and you know, Netanyahu's Likud party has the biggest chunk of that coalition. But what ends up happening in Israel's system, it's a, there's a lot of horse trading. There were seven weeks of coalition negotiations. And those parties were, were able to pretty much request anything they wanted. Netanyahu had very little leeway to say no. So, for example, Jewish Power, which is the name of one of the coalition parties, is a very, you know, racist, you know, J- Jewish extremist party. And Itamal Bengvil, who is the head of the party, is now the uh, national security minister. As part of the coalition wrang- wrangling, he got a law passed by the Knesset, which gives him unprecedented powers over Israel's police force and basically means that he he's, a, he's, a, he's become a very, very powerful man in Israeli politics, even though he got fewer seats in Knesset than Netanyahu did. So that's sort of, the, I guess, the background to the coalition at the moment. And Jewish News, which is a Jewish newspaper here in the UK, when Netanyahu partnered with these extremist parties ahead of the election, they splashed with a front page saying, 
where is the outrage, you know, to kind of the Jewish diaspora and UK Jews? Itamar Bengvil um, and Betzalel Smotrich, who's another extremist sort of figure in the party, have clearly stated they are they're anti-Arab, you know, anti-democratic, and Jew- and also views against kind of various kinds of Jews, right? They're kind of against any sort of Jewish pluralism, which is sort of very niche, I think, for non-Jews. But they're, they're not very friendly to reform Jews, for example. When Netanyahu won the election, they, they ran a front page saying, you know, this confirms our worst fears. We now have this kind of terrible terrible government. And what you've seen now since the government was sworn in just before the end of the year last year is that they're really getting quite busy, you know, doing doing the kinds of stuff that you would you people were scared of this government doing. And you've got people, you know, you said in the introduction there are calls to arrest the opposition. You know, those calls have come from members of that Jewish power party because the the leaders of the former government, so Yair Lapid and Benny Gantz, who are sort of centrist Israeli leaders who both kind of headed a big movement to try and get Netanyahu out of power before. They both um, talk, were talking about the judicial reforms, which we'll get to in a minute, that the government is pushing, saying they're anti-democratic and that people should protest. And members of that party kind of came out and said, you know, these people should be arrested for saying this stuff. And Itamar Bengville, the head of the party, was like, well, you know, well, we don't we don't want to arrest them. But that that's the kind of very divisive rhetoric that's happening. And President Isaac Herzog has come out and sort of said, well, everybody calm down. You know, both sides need to sort of chill out a little bit here. There's a lot of protests happening. Yesterday, a man was arrested for driving very close to a group of students protesting these judicial reforms and sort of shouting out leftists, anarchists. He wasn't trying to run them over, but he was kind of coming over and being very threatening. And there's a sense that violence will spill over at the moment. Haaretz, which is Israel's sort of liberal daily, so a bit like The Guardian or The New York Times, ran a an editorial today saying, you know, there will be blood. There's violence from the right to the left here and we need to watch out. So that's kind of, I guess, in broad strokes, the, the, the background to, to this government. Listening to you, it's, it's very alarming, especially because, as you said, the government's only been in, in power for a matter of days and already we're seeing a lot of quite disturbing rhetoric and, and measures coming from it. I also saw that uh, a member of, of the Likud, so the nominally kind of relatively moderate party, although of course it, it hasn't been moderate for a long time, saying that he preferred Jewish murderers to Arab, Arab murderers in the in the Jewish state. So quite disturbing um, rhetoric. But I, I suppose whether what I kind of like to, to, to know is whether you see this as a break or the continuation of a trend that had been occurring over the past decades. There's been this constant talk of kind of Israel becoming more and more right-wing, the left becoming more and more marginalized, slipping more towards, like, I mean, frankly, Jewish supremacism. For example, there was that quote-unquote nation-state law, which said that only Jews have national rights in, in the land of Israel, as they call it. Obviously, this coalition is something new, and these, these extremist Jewish supremacist parties in government are something new. But is this is this not also a sort of continuation of the trajectory that Israel had taken over, frankly, the, the time that Netanyahu has, has dominated Israeli politics? Before I kind of get into your question, this is important context to kind of answer you properly. I just want to also sort of explain that the, the government, of the, and like you said, Likud, which in theory would be the more moderate partner in this coalition, right? Because they are not a religious or far-right Party, they're meant to be a sort of broadly right wing 
kind of even centre-right, but they're not any more right party. And that's the party that Netanyahu leads. So the justice minister in the party last week announced these you know, sweeping judicial reforms, which would really limit the authority of the Supreme Court. So um, there are various, I mean, I'm not going to go into all the detail on that, but it would give the government more kind of power in terms of selecting the judging panel. It would give the, the, the Knesset with a 61 majority, which is the amount you need for a governing coalition, so basically the governing coalition, a way to veto Supreme Court decisions if they're not unanimously decided by the panel. So basically, if the government doesn't like that the Supreme Court has overturned something that it's decided, it can say, well, too bad, we're doing it anyway, kind of thing. And the, you know, Yeruf Levin, who is the justice minister, has been wanting to do this for ages. Um, and it's very convenient for Netanyahu because it means that, you know, he can kind of hopefully stay out of jail, basically, if he if they're kind of able to control more um, what they term kind of like the justice, the judiciary activism of the sort of the justice system in Israel. They're saying we're doing this because it's democratic and the opponents to it are saying, no, 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 you know, you're basically killing Israeli democracy because the government will be able to do what it likes. And the reason I wanted to say that first is because. I mean, your question is quite leading, but I do agree with you, which, which, which is which is lucky. Of course, this is this is a trend. You know, it's young Israelis. You know, everywhere in the world, young people poll to the to the left. You know, there's that old saying. You know, until you're you're a fool if you're not a socialist when you're young. You know, whatever it is, and you're a fool if you're not a conservative when you're old. You know, in Israel, young Israelis poll to the right. You know, in these last elections, young Israelis were voting for Itamar Bengvir, who's a very far right politician you know that and and you get more people identifying as left wing who are kind of older in israel so the population is moving rightwards and some people, when this government was vote, was voted in, you know, the Jewish news front page is a little bit typical of this, are saying, where's the outrage, these terrible coalition partners? And what some people were saying, certainly people on the left, was, yes, this is bad and it is worse than what, what came before. But it, it, it is a continuation of a trend. And it's not surprising that that's what has managed to sort of, these are the kinds of... I guess, political positions that have managed to get into government. Naftali Bennett, who was a key partner in the last government, is also pretty right wing. You know, he he's clearly being a bit more more moderate than these guys, but he used to be the head of the Esher Council of Settlements. He believes in a greater Israel, you know, all of that stuff. It's not, you know, a sudden complete break. The, the, the difference, I guess, is that Netanyahu, who's seen by Israelis and people who watch Israel as this like slick political comment operator, like no one can get the better of Netanyahu. In this case, he's he it's kind of he's lost control of these coalition partners who are quite extreme. That he gave them everything they wanted, so they'd enter a coalition with him. So the difference, I guess, is that the expectation is, oh, he'll be, he, you know, like he did with Benny Gantz, who joined him in Parliament, even though he led a movement against him and was so messed around by him and ended up losing lots of kind of political capital. Now it seems like actually Netanyahu is not in that position, and it's going to be quite difficult for him to stop some of the more extreme stuff, if, if he even wants to, who knows. But um, I agree with you that it's a trend. And the other thing I would add as well is that there's also something to be said about if you look at kind of what happens in the West Bank, you know, the Israeli military makes all sorts of decisions that Palestinians have no say over whatsoever. It's not very democratic, particularly. And somebody like Yariv Levine, the justice minister, why does he want to pass these judicial reforms? It's not to keep Netanyahu out of prison, necessarily. It's because he just kind of, he wants to be able to do what he thinks is right for the country or whatever, and, not, and the, the pesky judiciary shouldn't get in the way. And that's kind of the approach that Israel takes in the West Bank. We should be able to do what we like, settlements. You know, we don't want anybody telling us what to demolish or what not to demolish. And so you kind of wonder, well, if there's no democracy over there where Israel has a lot of authority, what's really protecting 
democracy for citizens within the green line, right? So it's a trend in all sorts of ways, I think. And I think for some Israelis, it's a bit of a kind of frog in the boiling water situation. They're kind of like, oh, this is, hang on a second, this is really bad now. But like you say, it's been getting bad for, for some time. Can I just turn one more question to Elena, which is, what does this mean for Israel's foreign policies, particularly in the, you know, the wider Middle East? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I think for Netanyahu, you know, when, when he when he came, I think the first week of government, Ben Gvil did this very annoying thing where he went to the Temple Mount, right, which is very, you know, this contested holy site in Jerusalem. And obviously was a way of kind of saying, no one's going to tell me what to do and I'll, I'll be myself and I'll still fight for Jews to go on the Temple Mount. And Netanyahu wasn't really able to stop him, right? You know, he, he ended up kind of clearly, I mean, I don't, you know, I don't know what exactly happened, but Ben Gvil went for a very very short time. He didn't notify the press really early in the morning. So they came to some sort of accommodation where he got to do it and it looked as least bad as it could for both parties. And Netanyahu wants to focus on building his relationships with the states on kind of working out what happens, you know, how to keep the work of the Abraham Accords going and to keep that sort of glory there for himself. And he wants to work out, you know, what, you know, what to do with, you know, Israel's Ukraine policy. So I think he doesn't want these partners to distract from that more important stuff. You know, Bibi loves being like this kind of man of the world world statesman who gets all that glory. He doesn't want to let that go. And I think what the, the problem is, you know, he, he, he cannot control these, these partners because they're just too powerful now. So it'll be really interesting to see how he's able to keep control of foreign policy. You know, in the, in the past government, when, when there have been other foreign ministers appointed, he's still kind of very involved in doing everything and they're completely sidelined, you know. So I imagine he'll be and I, I would also add, he's just started going back to court, I think, daily for his trial. Maybe not daily, but, you know, he's also got this court case going on. So, you know, he's got a lot to a lot to do while, while all this is happening. All right. Well, um, I'm sure we'll, we'll have many occasions to, to discuss what's going on in Israel. In it might the be future. another election. Who knows, Ido? Maybe <laughs> six months or something. Maybe in a year. Wherever you are in the world... If you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman in digital, in print, or both from as little as £1 a week. That's 12 weeks for just £12. That's €1 a week in Europe and just $2 a week in America. Just go to www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. 
Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hi, I'm Anoush, and I host the New Statesman podcast. Twice a week, we get under the skin of Westminster to help understand what's going on and what's going to happen next. We interview politicians, policymakers, and people on the front line to get you the full story behind the headlines. Plus, hear from our award-winning editorial team, including political editor Andrew Marr, to get to the bottom of what on earth is happening. Listen to the New Statesman podcast. You can subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. So now it's time to hear from you in the section that we like to call. You ask us. So our listener, our listener question this week asks, why is Stepan Bandera so controversial with Ukraine's allies? This is, uh, this is quite timely because on the 1st of January, there were some celebrations of this guy Bandera's birthday. Uh, I think it was something like his 144th birthday. And he's a, he's a very controversial um, wartime, so Second World War era, uh, Ukrainian nationalist who initially collaborated with uh, with the Nazis when they occupied what is now Western Ukraine because they told him that they would support an independent Ukraine, independent of the Soviet Union. And then later on, uh, his organization, which was called the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists, which primarily fought the Soviets, also fought the Nazis because they gave up on because they called on the idea of an independent Ukraine. But actually, so what's, what's interesting about this is that following the the celebrations on on new year's day there were condemnations by ukraine's allies particularly poland which views bandera as the perpetrator of mass violence against ethnic poles because of the massacre of 100,000 poles by the paramilitary ukrainian insurgent army which was under the OUNB uh, so bandera's organization's leadership during the war and so the Polish Prime Minister, Mateusz Morawiecki, told reporters that Poland, quote, takes an extremely critical stance towards any glorification or even remembrance of Bandera, whom he accused of genocide. So I, I've written a piece on this, uh, which we can put in the show notes. But I think this is a, a really interesting question because we don't often get such significant rifts between countries which are now very close allies, i.e. Ukraine and, and Poland. But this kind of memory politics question is is I think one of the main points of contention between the two countries. It's, I guess, part of a, Ukraine's kind of attempts to write itself a new national story after the Soviet Union. And 
there's been this kind of rehabilitation of figures who were censured by the Soviet Union for being so nationalist, Ukrainian nationalists, for, for believing in an independent Ukraine throughout the 20th century, of which Bandera is, I think, the most prominent. And the Soviet Union, after the Second World War, kind of really criticized Ukrainian nationalists as, as Banderites and, and created this kind of very negative narrative towards, towards Bandera. And once the Soviet Union collapsed, and particularly once Russia annexed Crimea in 2014, there was this kind of attempt to find historical antecedents to Ukraine's mounting fight with with Moscow, and, and um, Ukraine kind of reached for these for these historical figures who had fought Moscow, fought Soviet rule over Ukraine, even if they were linked to to atrocities. And yeah, Bandera is very negatively remembered by Poland for the massacre of ethnic Poles, but also the Ukrainian insurgent army was responsible for the deaths of probably tens of thousands of Jews. Yeah, and, and, it, and it kind of turns out that this is one of the one of the main points of contention between between Ukraine and and some of its allies. Not only Poland, also Germany, obviously Israel, not quite as close an ally at the moment, but um Israel takes takes a very critical stance towards glorification of, of Bandera too. I'd, I'd kind of encourage people who are interested in this to go and to go and read the full piece. But my kind of my takeaway from this is that the most confusing aspect for outsiders is that the lionization of figures like Bandera really obscures the reality of modern Ukraine, which is really not a kind of Banderite fascist state. It's a multi-ethnic, multi-religious, multilingual democracy, which is home to national minorities like Poles and Hungarians. Um, it's got a well-integrated Muslim minority, which is very largely pro-Ukrainian, not pro-Russian, even though many of them live under Russian occupation in Crimea. Not only that, when Volodymyr Zelensky was elected president in 2019, his prime minister was briefly uh, Volodymyr Groisman, who was, uh, who was prime minister before Zelensky was elected, which made Ukraine the only country other than Israel in modern times to be led by a Jewish head of state and head of government. So Kiev is is kind of by 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 insisting on the glorification of historical figures many allies find offensive. Kiev is not only alienating its friends but providing fuel for Russian propaganda, which falsely suggests that Ukraine is a fascist state and actively ob- obscuring the reality of of Ukraine's successful cosmopolitan society. All I'd add to what you say, Ido, I think that's a very good point. Is just observing how here in Germany the commemoration of Bandera has been leapt on by the most Russian apologist elements of the political spectrum. And so, as you say, it is it is a real aid to those who would denigrate Ukraine's struggle for its liberation. And it sort of it pains me to see Ukraine doing that as a as a firm supporter of, of Ukraine because it just does undermine the country's case. So I think I think it's the the points you make are very valid. I mean, the thing about this is there's no substance to the commemoration of Bandera at all. Like it's not like there are death squads marching around Ukraine, kind of going around killing national minorities. That's obviously not what's happening. And if there are death squads marching around killing people, they're, they're Russian. They're not Ukrainian. So, and you know, Ukraine is a democracy and there was a peaceful transfer of power. And none of these things are things that Bandera would have believed in, clearly. So that's kind of, I think, to outsiders, the most baffling thing. And I mean, I, I spoke to people who who really hoped that as Ukraine writes itself a new national story in almost real time. They hoped that it will both find new heroes and form a new, more nuanced attitude to the old ones. But other people disagree and say that the glorification of Bandera will continue. Yeah, I don't think the story is, is going away any anytime soon. And with that, 
thanks to all of you who sent in your questions. You can send yours in at newstatesman.com slash youaskus. That's all we have time for today. Join us on Monday for our interview episode with Radek Sikorski, the former Polish foreign minister, about the prospects for the Polish opposition in the upcoming general election and his country's support for Ukraine. If you're a regular World Review listener and haven't already subscribed, then please do so. Please also rate us five stars and leave us a good review. It really does help. Our producer has been Mae Robson. Thank you for listening and until next time. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big money and transform your home with new appliances now at Menards. We offer the lowest prices and the largest in-stock appliance selection ready to take home today. Check out top appliance brands, including KitchenAid, Maytag, Whirlpool, Amana, and Criterion. Upgrade your home and save big money on new appliances at Menards. Shop our entire selection of appliance options online today at Menards.com. Save big money.